I sometimes read uh, public domain books here on Leaves of Glen. And they were written a long time ago, uh, so they're usually uh, racist or sexist or bigoted. Uh, but in there somewhere and all that is a, a story, and that's why those stories are famous. Other times, I read uh, works from independent authors, and they're delightfully not racist, but they might have adult language or adult situations. So that's your warning, uh, but I'm sure you uh, are grown up enough to handle it. Don't write to me complaining. Oh, what's new? You might be wondering. Uh, I certainly can't have a back-and-forth dialogue with you. It's all one-sided, thank God. So me? Oh, I'll talk about me. Uh, I don't have anything going on. Uh, I had the kids here uh, for a day and a half, and they went home. And then I thought about recording an episode, but then I thought, eh, I'm tired. And then I stayed up all night. I couldn't sleep. I fell asleep listening to... uh, Scary Stories, an audiobook, uh, I think from Masterson. Uh, he wrote The Haunting of Hell House. He had a series of short stories. Uh, and they're scary just because they're weird. Uh, one is about a kid who's just so enamored with his dead mother. And the whole short story is just filled with how sweet her bed smells and how soft the, the fabric is on the comforter and just on and on. And how he just loves this dress that she, she always wore. And he just always has to feel it and touch it. He goes on and on. And then he like lets some little girl come over and to show off how beautiful all his mother's stuff is. And she says, ah, it's, it's uh, this is dumb. And then he's like, well, look at this picture of my mom. Isn't she the most beautiful woman in the world? And the girl goes, nah, she's, uh, she's got buck teeth. She's not beautiful. So then the kid freaks out and kills her. And the entire time he's killing her, he's screaming, you don't talk about my mom that way. And then I guess a voice is heard saying, like, don't let her talk about me that way. And then he finally kills her. And so it's not like a ghost story, ghost story, but it's uh, it's haunting enough. So I fell asleep listening to that, which was a dumb idea. And then I had a dream about a ghost in my house. And uh, that scared the hell out of me. And I woke myself up by trying to yell. But instead, I just made this dumb noise like, ugh. <laughs> so then I woke myself up And I thought, what am I doing? I'm giving myself a nightmare Because of course the audiobook's still going While I wake up And so I turned it off and I couldn't sleep So then I'm tired all day And now I'm drinking coffee And watching the debates Which was fine Trump did the bare minimum Of not shouting and interrupting He did the bare minimum of being a politician In the middle of a debate Did he succeed? Nah, he was still embarrassing uh, just, I'm not going to get into it. Uh, Biden, was he that much better? Eh, he came off more professional, but was he like super fantastic and blew me away? No, no, not at all. Uh, is he a cute old man? Yeah, he looks like a cute old man. So that's, that's adorable right there. Uh, is it going to help him win? I don't know. Everything's up, uh, upside down, so I have no idea. Uh, another upside down thing? Other people in my company that have been laid off, they decided to kind of freak out and do things like buy a puppy, which is cute, and it's fine, and I fully support it. Me? I decided to pre-order the new stupid iPhone. Why? I don't know. Is it better than the one I had? No, not by much. Uh, is it more expensive than the one? Yes. It's, I have to make payments now. Uh, why am I getting it? I don't know. But I pre-ordered it a week ago, and it's all I can think about. So, apparently I'm having a nervous breakdown. With that, let's dive into our next story. Yeah, my basement smells bad. smells weird down here. Some sort of drainage thing happening. It's gross. This week's author, M.R. James. Montag, Montag, Rhodes James. Born the 1st of August, 1862, and died the 12th of June, 1936. Uh, he was an English author, a medievalist scholar, and a, prova, a provost? Eh, not looking it up. I've seen the word before, I just don't think I've ever had to say it out loud until now. Of King's College, Cambridge. 
1905 to 1918, and of Eton College, 1918-1936, and he was the Vice Chancellor of the University of Cambridge, 1913 to 1915. Uh, James' work uh, as a medievalist author and scholar is still highly regarded. He is best remembered for his ghost stories, uh, which some regard as among the best in the genre. Uh, James redefined the ghost story uh, for the new century by abandoning many of the formal gothic cliches, thank God, of his predecessors and using more realistic contemporary settings. However, James' protagonists and plots tend to reflect his own antiquation or antiquarian interests. Uh, accordingly, he is known as the originator of the antiquarian ghost story. So with that, let's dive into the story. Casting the Runes by M.R. James. April 15th, 190- Oh, he's going to start writing like that. I was kind of hoping... I don't know if I've ever actually sat down and read anything he's wrote. Uh, I'm aware of his stories recreated by other people, but I've never actually sat down and read one of his things. So I was kind of hoping he didn't write the same way that I'm getting really annoyed at, which is, you've got a point you're going to make, and you take 15 pages trying to get to it. Uh, but the, the dashes? Ooh, that's not a good sign. Dear sir, I am requested by the Council of the Dash Association to return to you the draft of a paper on the truth of alchemy, which you have been good enough to offer to read at our forthcoming meeting, and to inform you that the Council do not see their way to including it in the program. I am yours faithfully, Dash Secretary. April 18th. Man, it smells bad down here. I gotta figure out what the hell that is. Dear sir, I am sorry to say that my engagements do not permit of my affording you an interview on the subject of your proposed paper. Nor do our laws allow of your discussing the matter with the committee or our council. And as you suggest, please allow me to assure you the fullest consideration was given for the draft which you submitted and that it was not declined without having been referred to the judgment of a most competent authority. No personal question, it can hardly be necessary for me to add, can have had the slightest influence on the decision of the council. Believe me, uh, Utsupra. April 20th. The Secretary of Dash Association begs respectfully to inform Mr. Carswell that it is impossible for him to communicate the name of any person or persons to whom the draft of Mr. Carswell paper may have been submitted and further decides to intimate that he cannot undertake uh, to reply to any further letters on the subject. Uh, who is uh, Mr. Carswell? inquired the Secretary's wife. She had uh, called at his office and, perhaps unwarrantedly, uh, had picked up uh, the last of these th three letters, which the typist had just brought in. Why, my dear, just at present, Mr. Carswell is a very angry man. But I don't know uh, much about him otherwise, except that he's a person of wealth. <laughs> his address is, ooh, Lufford Abbey, Wickshire. And he's an alchemist, uh, apparently, and he wants to tell us about it. That's, a. Uh, yeah, that's about all, except that I don't want to meet him for the next week or two. Now, if you're ready to leave this place, I am. Hey, what have you, you been doing to make him angry? Asked Miss Secretary. Ah, the usual thing, my dear, the usual thing. He, he sent a draft of a paper, uh, and he wanted to read the next meeting, and uh, referred it to Edward Dunning, almost the only man in England who knows about these things, and he said it was perfectly hopeless, uh, so he declined it. So, Carswell has been pelting me with letters ever since. Uh, the last thing he wanted was the name of the man we referred to this nonsense to. Uh, you saw my answer to that, uh, but don't you say anything about it, for goodness sake. Oh, I should think not, indeed. Uh, did I ever do such a thing? I, I, I do hope, though he won't uh, get to know that it was poor Mr. Dunning. Uh, poor Mr. Dunning? Oh, I don't know why you call him that. Uh, he's a happy man. Uh, is dunning lots of hobbies and a comfortable, comfortable home and uh, all his time to himself. I only meant uh, I should be sorry for him if this man got hold of his name and came and bothered him. Oh, ah, yes, I dare say he would be poor Mr. Dunning then. Nope, I gotta go open a window. My brand new window. It just smells down here. I don't understand what the hell's going on. It smells like something died. Thank you. 
That's it. That'll air out the joint. Back to the story. The secretary and his wife were lunching out, and the friends to whose house they were bound were Wickshire people. So Mrs. Secretary had already settled it in her own mind that she would question them judiciously about Mr. Carswell, but she would save the trouble of leading up to the subject, for the hostess said to the host before many minutes passed, I saw the Abbott Luffer this morning. The host whistled. Did you? Eh, when the world brings him up to town? Ah, oh, goodness knows. He was coming out of that British Museum gate as I drove past. It is not unnatural that Mrs. Secretary should inquire whether this was a real abbot who was being spoken of. Oh, no, my dear, oh, a neighbor of ours in the country who has bought Lufford Abbey a few years ago. His real name is Carswell. Is he a friend of yours? asked Mrs. Secretary. With a private wink to his wife. Oh, Mr. Secretary. The question let loose a torrent of declamation. There was really nothing to be said for Mr. Carswell. Nobody knew uh, what he did with himself. His servants were a horrible set of people. He had invented a, a new religion for himself. In, pra- in practice, no one could tell what uh, appalling rites, and he was very easily offended and uh, never forgave anybody. He had a dreadful face, so the lady insisted, her husband somewhat demurring. He never did a, never did a kind action, and whatever influence he did exert was uh, mischievous. Uh, do the poor man justice, dear, the husband interrupted. You forget the treat he gave the school children. Never get it, indeed, but I'm glad you mentioned it, because it gives an idea of the man. Now, Florence, uh, listen to this. The first winter, he's at Lufford, this delightful neighbor of ours, wrote to the clergyman of the parish. He's not ours, but we know him very well. And offered to show the school children some uh, magic lantern slides. Hmm. And he said he had a few uh, new kinds, which he thought would interest them. Well... The clergyman was rather surprised, because Mr. Carswell had showed himself inclined to be uh, uh, unpleasant to children, complaining of their trespassing or something of the sort. But of course he accepted, and the evening was fixed, and our friend went himself to see that everything went right. He said he never had uh, been so thankful for anything, as that his own children were all prevented from being there. They were at a children's party at our house. As a matter of fact, because of this, Mr. Carswell had evidently set out with the intention of frightening these poor village children out of their wits. And I do believe if he had been allowed to go on, he actually would have done so. He began with some comparatively mild things. Uh, Red Riding Hood was one. Uh, And even then, Mr. Farr said, the wolf was so dreadful uh, that several of the smaller children had to be taken out. And he said Mr. Carswell began the story by producing a noise uh, like, a, like a wolf howling in the distance, uh, which he was the most gruesome thing he had ever heard. All the slides uh, he showed, Mr. Fair said, were most clever. They were absolutely realistic. And uh, he got them and how he worked them, he could not imagine. Well, the show went on, and the stories kept on becoming a little more terrifying each time, and the children uh, were mesmerized in complete silence. At last, he produced a series which represented a little boy passing through his own park, uh, Lufford, I mean, in the evening. Every child in the room could recognize the place from the pictures. This poor boy was followed, and at last pursued and overtaken, and either torn in pieces or somehow made away with by a horrible hopping creature, eye and white, which you saw first dodging about among the trees, and gradually it appeared more and more plainly. Mr. Farrer uh, said it gave him one of the worst nightmares he ever remembered. Hey, just like me. And it was uh, it meant to have the children don't bear thinking of. Of course, this was too much, and he spoke very sharply indeed to Mr. Carswell, and he said it could go on. All he said was, Oh, you think it's time to bring our little show to an end? Eh? And send them home to their beds? Now, very well. And then... If you please, he switched on another slide, which showed a great mass of snakes and centipedes and disgusting creatures with wings, uh, and somehow or other made it seem as if they were climbing out of the picture and getting in amongst the audience. And this was accompanied by a, a sort of dry rustling noise, which sent the children nearly mad. And of course, they stampeded. A good many of them uh, were rather hurt in getting out of the room, and I don't suppose uh, one of them closed an eye that night. Now, there was the most dreadful trouble in the village afterwards. Of course, the the mothers threw a good part of the blame on poor Mr. Farrer, and if they could have uh, got past the gates, I believe the fathers would have spoken uh, and broken every window in the abbey. Well, now that's Mr. Carswell. 
uh, the Abbot of Lufford, my dear, and you can imagine how we covet his society. Yes, I think he has all the possibilities of a distinguished criminal, has Carswell, said the host. I should be uh, sorry for anyone who got uh, in his bad books. Is he the man? Am I mixing him up with uh, someone else? Asked the secretary, for who some minutes had passed wearing a frown of the man who was trying to recollect something. Is he the man who brought uh, the history of witchcraft some time back, uh, ten years or more? That's the man. Do you remember the reviews of it? Oh, certainly I do. Uh, What's equally the point, I knew the author of the most incisive of the lot. So did you. Uh, You must remember John Harrington. He was at John's in our time. Oh, very well indeed. I don't think I uh, saw or heard anything of him between the time I went down and the day I read the inquest of the inquest on him. Inquest, said one of the ladies. What has happened to him? Why? What happened was that he fell out of a a tree and broke his neck. The puzzle was, uh, what could have induced him to get up there? It was a mysterious business, I must say. Here's this man... Not an athletic fellow, was he? There was no eccentric twist about him that ever was noticed. Walking on along the country road late in the evening, no tramps about. Well known and liked in the place, and he suddenly begins to run like mad. Loses his hat and stick, and finally shins up a tree. Quite a difficult tree, growing in the hedgerow. A dead branch gives way, and he comes down and breaks his neck. There he's found the next morning, uh, with the most dreadful face of fear on it that could be imagined. It is pretty evident, of course, that he had been uh, chased by something, and people talked of savage dogs and beasts escaped out of menageries, but it was nothing to be made of that. Uh, That was in 89, and I believe his brother, uh, Henry, who I remember well at Cambridge, but you probably don't, has been trying to get on the track of explanation ever since. He, of course, insists that there is malice in it, but uh, I don't know. It's difficult to see. Uh, how it could have come in. After a time, the talk reverted to the history of witchcraft. Did you you ever look into it? Asked the host. Oh, yes, I did, said the secretary. I went so far as to read it. Was it as bad as it made out to be? Oh, at any point, style and form, quite hopeless. It deserved all the pulverizing it got, but besides that, uh, it was an evil book. The man believed every word of what he was saying, and I am very much mistaken if he hadn't uh, tried the greater part of his receipts. Well, I only remember Harrington's review of it, and I must say, if I'd been the author, it would have been quenched my literary ambition for good. I should never have held up my head again. Oh, it hasn't had the effect on the present case. Uh, But come, it's half past three. I must be off. On the way home, the secretary's wife said, I do hope that that horrible man won't find out that Mr. Dunning had anything to do with the rejection of his paper. I don't think there's much chance of that, said the secretary. Dunning won't mention it himself. His matters are confidential, and none of us uh, will for the same reason. Carswell uh, won't know his name, uh, for Dunning hasn't published anything on the same subject yet. The only danger is that Carswell might find out. And if he was to ask the British Museum people, uh, who was in the habit of consulting alchemical uh, manuscripts, I can't uh, very well tell him not to mention Dunning, can I? Oh, it set them talking at once. Let's hope it won't occur to him. However, Mr. Carswell was an astute man. This much is in the way of prologue. On an evening, rather later in the same week, Mr. Edward Dunning was returning from the British Museum where he'd been engaged in uh, research, to the comfortable house in a suburb where he lived alone, tended by an excellent woman who had been long with him, and there's nothing to be added by way of description of him uh, to what we have heard already. Let us follow him as he takes his sober course homewards. A train took him to within a mile or two of his house, and an electric tram a stage further. The line ended at a point... With some 300 yards from his front door, he had had, ooh, two hands in a row, he had had enough of reading when he got into his car. And indeed, the light was not such as to allow him to do more than study at the advertisements on the panes of glass that faced him as he sat. As he was not unnatural, the advertisements in this particular line of cars were objects of his frequent contemplation, and with the possible exception of the brilliant, convincing dialogue between Mr. Lamplow and the eminent KC on the... Ooh, the eminent KC. <laughs> on the subject of pyretic saline, saline, none of them afforded much scope to his imagination. I am wrong. 
There was one at the corner of the car furthest from him which did not seem familiar. It was, in blue letters on yellow ground, and all that he could read of it was the name, John Harrington, and something like a date. It could be no interest to him to know more, but for all that, as the car emptied, he was just curious enough to move along the seat until he could read it well. He felt, to a slight extent, repaid for his trouble. And the advertisement was not of the usual type. It ran uh, thus. In memory of John Harrington, FSA of the Laurels Ashbrook. Died September 18th, 1889. Three months were allowed. Now the car stopped. Mr. Dunning, still complaining, uh, contemplating the blue letters on the yellow ground, had to be stimulated to rise by a word from the conductor. Uh, I beg your pardon, he said. I was looking at the advertisement. It's a very odd one, isn't it? The conductor read it slowly. Well, my word, he said. I'd never seen that one before. Well, that is a cure, isn't it? Someone been up their jokes here, I should think. He got uh, got out a duster and applied it. Not without saliva to the pain and then to the outside. No, he said, returning. That ain't no transfer. Seems to be as if it's a regular in the glass. What I mean is the substance, as you may say. Don't you think so, sir? Mr. Dunning examined it, rubbed it with his glove, and agreed. Who looks after these advertisements and gives leave for them to get put up? I wish you would inquire. I will just take a note of these words. At this moment, there came a call from the driver. Look alive, uh, George. Time's up. All right, all right. There's something else. What's up at the end? You come and look at here at this glass. Uh, What's going at the glass, said the driver, approaching. Well and ooze, Arrington. What's it all about? Well and ooze, Arrington? All right, whatever. I was just asking who's responsible for putting the advertisements up at the cars and saying, well, it should be make some inquiry about this one. Well, sir, that's all done at the company's orifice. <laughs> O-R-F-I-C-E. Uh, that work is... It's our Mr. Timms, I believe, looks into that. And when we put up tonight, I'll leave word and perhaps... I'll be able to tell you tomorrow, T-O-M-O-R-R-E-R, if you happen to be coming this way. This was all well, that passed that evening, and Mr. Dunning did just go to the trouble of looking up Ashbrook and found that it was in Workshire. Next day, he went to town again. The car, it was the same car, was too full in the morning to allow his getting a word with the conductor uh, he could only be sure that the curious advertisement had been made away with, and close to the day he brought the further element of mystery into the transaction, he had missed the tram, or perhaps preferred walking home, but at a rather late hour, while he was at work in his study, one of the maids came to say that two men from the tramways were very anxious to speak to him. This was a reminder of the advertisement which he had, he says, nearly forgotten. He had the men in, they were conductor and driver of the car, and uh, when the matter of refreshment had been attended to, he asked what Mr. Timms had to say about the advertisement. Oh, well, sir, that's what we took the liberty to step round about, said the conductor. Mr. Timms, he give William er the rough side of the tongue about that cordon to him. There ain't weren't no advertisement of that description sent in, nor ordered, nor paid for, nor put up, nor nothing, uh, let alone be in there. And he was playing with the fool for taking his time. Well, I says, if that's the case, all I ask of you, Mr. Timms, I says, is to take a look at it for yourself, I says. Of course, uh, if it ain't there, I says, you may take and call me what you like. Right, he says, I will. And we went straight off. Now I'll leave it to you, sir. If that ad, as we term him, with Arrington on it, weren't plain... Uh, as plain as you ever see anything, blue letters on yellow glass. And as I say at the time, you're born out regular in the glass, because if you remember, you rec- recollect me swabbing it with my duster. To be sure, I do quite clearly well. Uh, you may say, well, I don't think Mr. Timms, he gets in that car with a light. No. He tell William, the old uh, light outside, now, he says, where's your precious ad uh, that we've heard so much about? Here it is, I said, Mr. Timms. And I lay my hand on it. The conductor paused. I'm trying to get rid of the weird writing and just kind of read it <laughs> straight, but it's still tough to do. Well, said Mr. Dunning, is gone, I suppose. Uh, broken? Broke? Oh, not it. 
There weren't, if you believe me, no more trace of them letters. Yeah, blue letters as they was on the piece o' glass. Then, uh, well, not, there's no good talking to me. I never seen such a thing. I, I leave it to William here. Uh, but there, as I says, was the benefit of me going on about it. The whole thing makes no sense. And what did Mr. Tim say? Why, apostrophe, letter E, did what I gave him leave to. Called us pretty much anything he liked. And I don't know if I blame him so much either. But what we thought, uh, William and me did, was we take you, uh, see you down a bit of a note about that. Well, that lettering. I certainly did that. And I have it now. Uh, do you wish me to speak to Mr. Timms myself and show it to him? Uh, was that what you came about? There, I didn't say as much, said William. Deal with a gent if you can. Get on the track of one, and that's my word. Now, perhaps, George, you'll allow as I... Ain't uh, took you very far wrong tonight. Very well, William. Very well. No need for you to go on as if you had uh, to frog march me here. I come quiet, didn't I? All the same for that, and we had not to take up any more time this way, sir. So if you append, you could... I don't, I don't know what they're saying. I hate reading these guys. You should find some time to step around the company's office in the morning and tell Mr... Oh, now they're talking normal. Tell Mr. Timms what you've seen for yourself. We would rather lay under a very eye obligation to you for the trouble. You see, it ain't being called, well, one thing or another, as we mind, if they got into their ed at the orifice as we've seen things that weren't there. Why, one thing leads to another, and there we should be a twelve a months ants. Twelve a months ants. Well, you can understand what I mean. I hope that these guys leave the scene. I'm tired of reading them. Amid further elucidations of the proposition, George, conducted by William, left the room. Thank God. The incredulity of Mr. Timms, who had a nodding acquaintance with Mr. Dunning, was greatly modified on the following day, but what the latter would tell and show him, and any bad mark that may have been attached to the names of William and George, was not suffered to remain on the company books. Ah, but explanation there was none. Mr. Dunning's interest in the matter was kept alive by an incident the following afternoon. He was walking from his club to the train, and he noticed some way ahead a man with a handful of leaflets, such as distributed passerby agents of uh, enterprising firms. Uh, this agent had not chosen a very crowded street for his operations. In fact, Mr. Dunning did not see him get rid of a single leaflet before he himself reached the spot. One thrust into his hand as he passed. The hand... That gave it touched his and experienced a sort of little shock as it did so. It seemed uh, unnaturally rough and hot, and he looked at a passing of the giver, but the impression he got was so unclear that, however much he tried to reckon it up, subsequently nothing would come. He was walking quickly, and as he went on, glanced the paper. It's a blue one. The name of Harrington in large capitals caught his eye. He stopped, startled, and fell for his glasses. The next instant... Uh, the leaflet was twitched out of his hand by a man who hurried past and was irre irre irrevocably gone. Oh, boy, I'm having another one of those nights. I blame the two uh, truck people. <laughs> they screwed me up. They put me on a bad track. He ran back a few paces. Ah, but where was the passerby? And uh, where's the distributor? It was in a somewhat pensive frame of mind that Mr. Dunning passed on the following day into the select manuscript room of the British Museum and filled up tickets for Harley 3586 and some other volumes. After a few minutes, yeah, they were brought to him. He was settling the one he wanted upon his desk, and he thought he heard his own name and whispered behind him. He turned round uh, hastily. And in doing so, brushed uh, his little portfolio of loose papers on the floor. He saw uh, no one he recognized except one of the staff in charge of the room who nodded to him and then proceeded to pick up his papers. He thought he had them all and uh, was turning to begin work when a stout gentleman at the table behind him, who was just raising to leave, had collected his own belongings, touched him on the shoulder, saying, May I give you this? I think it should be yours. It handed him a missing choir. It is mine. Thank you, said Mr. Dunning. In another moment, the man had left the room. And upon finishing his work for the afternoon, Mr. Dunning had the same conversation with the assistant in charge and took occasion to ask who the stout gentleman was. Uh, he's a man named Carswell, said the assistant. He was asking me uh, a week ago 
who were the great authorities on alchemy. And, of course, I told him you were the only one in the country. And I'll see if I can't catch him. Uh, he'd like to meet you, I'm sure. Oh, for heaven's sake, don't dream of it, said Mr. Dunning. I'm particularly anxious to avoid him. Oh, very well, said the assistant. He hasn't come here often. I dare say you won't meet him. More than once, on the way home that day, Mr. Dunning confessed to himself that he did not look forward with his usual cheerfulness to the solitary evening. It seemed to him that something ill-defined and palatable had stepped up in between him and his fellow men. He had taken him charge as, as it were. He wanted to sit close to his neighbors in the train and in the tram, but as luck would have it, uh, both train and car were markedly empty. The conductor... George was thoughtful and appeared to be absorbed in calculations as to the number of passengers. On arriving at his house, he found Dr. Watson, uh, his medical man, on the doorstep. Uh, I've had to upset your household arrangements. I'm sorry to say, Dunning. Both your servants, uh, hors de combat. Or de combat. All right, whatever. In fact, I've had to send them to the nursing home. Uh, good heavens. What's the matter? Ah, it's something like a potamine poisoning, I should think. You've not suffered yourself, I can see, or you wouldn't be walking about. I think they'll pull through all right. Uh, dear, dear, any idea what brought it on? Well, they tell me they bought some shellfish from a hawker at their dinner time. It's odd. I made inquiries, but I can't find any hawker. It's been to other houses in the street. I couldn't send word to you. Uh, they won't be back for a bit yet. You come and dine with me tonight, anyhow. Uh, well, you make arrangements uh, for going on. Uh, eight o'clock. Don't be too anxious. The solitary evening was thus uh, obviated at the expense of some distress and inconvenience. It's true. Mr. Dunning spent uh, time pleasantly enough with the doctor, a rather recent settler, and returned to his lonely home at about 11.30. The night he passed is not one on which he looks back with any satisfaction. He was in a bed, and the lights were out, and he was wondering if the chairwoman would come uh, early enough to get him hot water the next morning. <laughs> when he heard the unmistakable sound of his study door opening, and no step followed it on the passage floor, but the sound must mean mischief for he knew that he had shut the door that evening after putting his papers away at the desk. It was rather shame than courage that induced him to slip out of the passage and lean over the banister in his nightgown, uh, listening. No, no light was visible. No further sound came. Only a, only a gust of warm or even hot air played for an instant around his, around his shins. He went back and decided to lock himself in his room. As more unpleasant, however, uh, either an economical suburban company decided to, that their light would not be required in the small hours. It stopped working, or else something was wrong with the meter. In effect, it uh, was in any case, the electric light was off. The obvious course was to find a match, and also to consult his watch. He might as well know how many hours of discomfort awaited him, so he put his hand into the well-known nook under his pillow. Only it did not get so far. What he touched was... Uh, according to his account, a, a mouth uh, with teeth, uh, with a hair about it. And he declares, uh, not the mouth of a human being. And I don't think it's any use to guess uh, what he said or did. But he was in a spare room with the door locked and his ear uh, to it before he was clearly conscious again. And he spent the most, uh, most miserable night looking every moment for some fumbling at the door, but nothing came. Venturing back to his room in the morning was attended, uh, with many listenings and quiverings. The door stood open, uh, fortunately, and the blinds were up. The servants had been out of the house before the hour of drawing them down. There he was, to be short, no trace of an inhabitant. The watch, too, was in its usual place. Nothing was disturbed, only the wardrobe door had swung open, uh, in accordance with its conformed habit. Uh, a ring at the back door now announced the chairwoman who had been ordered the night before and, uh, and nerved Mrs. Dunning, Mr. Dunning, after letting her in, to continue his search for other parts of the house. He was equally fruitless. They're not going to talk about the mouth, the teeth. Uh, the day thus began went on dismally, though. Uh, he dared not to go to the museum in spite of what the assistant had said, and Mr. Carswell might turn up there, but they're not going to talk about the mouth, the teeth, under the pillow. And is it just uh, not going to look into that? 
in the daytime, and Dunning felt that he could not cope with a probably, host- or probably hostile stranger. His own house was odious, and he hated uh, sponging on the doctor. He spent some uh, little time in a call at the nursing home, where he was slightly cheered by a good report of the housekeeper and the maid. Uh, towards lunchtime, he betook himself to his club, uh, again experiencing a gleam of satisfaction at seeing the secretary of the association. At luncheon, Downing uh, told his friend the more material of his woes. He could not bring himself to speak of those that weighed most heavily on his spirits. My poor dear man, said the secretary. What an upset. Oh, look here, you're not alone at home, absolutely. You must put up with us. Yes, no excuse. Send your things in the afternoon. Dunning was unable to stand out. He was, in truth, becoming acutely anxious as the hours went on as to what the night may have been waiting for him. He was uh, almost happy as he hurried home to pack up. His friends, uh, when they had time to take stock of him, were rather shocked at his lorn appearance and did their best to keep him up to mark. Not altogether without success, but when the two men were smoking alone later, Dunning became dull again, and suddenly said, uh, Gaten, I believe that alchemist man knows it was I who got his paper rejected. Gaten whistled. <laughs> I love doing the whistles lately. Why? It's just because I'm reading all those stories that involve people whistling. Uh, what makes you think that? He said. Dunning told of his conversation with the museum assistant, and Gaten could only agree that the guess seemed likely to be correct. Uh, not that I much care, Dunning went on. Only it uh, might be a nuisance if uh, we were to meet. It's a bad-tempered party, I imagine. The conversation dropped again. Gaten uh, came more and more strongly impressed with the desolateness that came over Dunning's face and bearing. And finally, though with considerable effort, he asked him point-blank whether something serious was not bothering him. Dunning uh, gave an explanation of uh, relief. I was perishing to get it off my mind, he said. Uh, do you know anything uh, about a man named John Harrington? Gaten was thoroughly startled. And at the moment, could only ask why. Then the complete story of Dunning's experiences came out. What happened in the tram car, uh, his own house, uh, in the street, uh, the troubling spirit that had crept over him and still held him, and he, uh, he ended with the question that he had begun with. Gaten was at a loss about how to answer him. To tell the story of Harrington's end would perhaps be right, only Dunning was in a nervous state. Oh, the story was a grim one. He could not help uh, asking himself whether there was not a connecting link between these two cases if the person of Carswell. It was a difficult concession for a scientific man, but it could be eased by the phrase hypnotic suggestion. In the end, he decided that his answer tonight should be guarded. He would talk the situation over with his wife. So he said that he had known Harrington at Cambridge and believed that he had died suddenly in 1889 adding a few details about a man and his published work. He did talk over the matter with Mrs. Uh, Gayton, and as uh, he had anticipated, she leapt at once to the conclusion, which had been hovering over him. It was uh, she who reminded him of the surviving brother, Harry, or Henry Harrington, <clears throat> and she also suggested that he might get a hold of any means of their host on the day before. He might be a hopeless crank, objected Gayton. Uh, but then he'd be ascertained from the Bennets, who knew him. Mrs. Gayton retorted, and she undertook to see that the Bennets the very next day. It is not necessary to tell in further detail the steps by which Harry, Harrington, and Dunning were brought together. Oh, good. You're going to skip over that part. He is writing a little roundabouty, <clears throat> which is getting kind of annoying. The next scene that does require to be narrated uh, is a conversation that took place between the two. Dunning had told Harrington of the strange ways in which the dead man's name had been brought before him, and it said, it said something uh, besides of his own subsequent experiences. And then he had asked if Harrington was disposed in return uh, to recall any of the circumstances connected with his brother's death. Harrington's surprise at what he heard could be imagined, but his reply was readily given. John, he said, is in a very odd state. Undeniably, from time to time, during some weeks before, though not immediately before the catastrophe. Ugh. <laughs> He's doing it. He's going roundabout. It's driving me crazy. There were several things. The principal notion he had was that he thought he was being followed. No doubt, he was an impressionable man. 
but he never had such fancies as this before. I cannot uh, get it out of my mind that there was ill will at work. And what you can tell me about yourself reminds me very much of my brother. Can you, can you think of any possible connecting link? There is just one that's been taking shape vaguely in my mind. I've been told that your brother reviewed a book very severely long, not long before he died. And just lately I have uh, happened to cross the path of the man who wrote that book in a way that he would resent. And don't tell me that man was Carswell. Why not? That's exactly his name. Harry, Henry Harrington, I want to say Harry Harrington really badly, leant back. That is the final to my mind. Now I must explain further, for something he said, I feel sure that my brother John was beginning to believe, very much against his will, that Carswell was at the bottom of his trouble. I want to tell you what seems to me to have a bearing on the situation. My brother was a great musician, and he used to run up to concerts in town and came back three months before he died. From one of these, I gave me his program and looked at it, an analytical program. He always kept them. And I nearly missed this one, he said. I suppose I must have dropped it anyhow. I was looking for it under my seat, uh, my pockets and so on, and they never offered me this. Uh, he said, uh, might he give it to me? He had no further use for it, and he went away just afterwards. I don't know who he was, uh, a stout, not clean-shaven man. I uh, should have uh, been sorry to miss it, of course, uh, could have been brought another, but this cost me nothing. At another time, he told me that he had been very uncomfortable, both on the way to his hotel and during the night. I pieced things together, now thinking it over. Then, not very long after, he was going over these programs, putting them in order to have them bound up. And this particular one, oh my god, just get to the point, he found quite near the beginning of the strip of paper, some very odd writing on the back, uh, red and black, most carefully done. It looked to me like the runic letters that, uh, than anything else. Why, he said, this must belong to my fat neighbor. It looks as if it might be worth returning to him. Why's it got to be the fat neighbor? It may be a copy or something. Evidently, someone has taken trouble over it. Uh, how can I find his address? Ah, we talked it over for a little and agreed that it wasn't worth advertising about and that my brother had better look out for the man at the next concert, uh, to which he was going very soon. The paper was lying on the book, and we were both by the fire. It was a cold, windy summer evening, and I suppose the, uh, eh, the door blew open, though I didn't notice it. At any rate, a gust, uh, a warm gust it was, came quite suddenly between us, took the paper and blew it straight to the fire. It was light, eh, thin paper, and flared, it went up the chimney in a single ash. Well, I said, can't give it back now. <laughs> he said nothing for a minute. Then rather crossly, no, I can't. Why should you keep on saying so? I don't know. I remarked that I didn't say it more than once. Not more than four times, you mean, all he said. I remember all that very clearly, yeah, without any good reasons. Now... To come to the point, oh, thank God. I don't know if you looked at that book of Carswell's, which my unfortunate brother reviewed. It's not likely that you should, uh, but I did, both before his death and after it. The first time, we made a game of it together. It was written in no style at all, with split infinitives and every sort of thing that makes an Oxford gorge rise. Then there was nothing that that man didn't swallow, mixing up classical myths and stories out of the golden legend with the reports of savage customs of today, all the proper, no doubt, if you know how to use them, but he didn't. They seemed to put the golden legend and the golden bow exactly on par. Oh, and to believe both, uh, a pitiable explanation of sort. Well, after the misfortune, I looked over the book again. It was no better than before. But the impression which had left this time on my mind was different. I suspected, as I told you, that Carswell had borne ill will to my brother. Even that, he was in some way responsible for what had happened. And now his book seemed to me to be a very sinister performance indeed. One chapter in particular uh, struck me, in which he spoke of casting the runes on people, either for the purpose of gaining their affection or getting them out of the way. Perhaps more especially uh, the latter, he spoke of all this in a way that really seemed to me to actually imply knowledge. 
I have not time to go into the details, but the upshot is that I am pretty sure from information received in the civil man at the concert was Carswell. I suspect, I more than suspect, that the paper was of importance. And I do believe that if my brother had been able to give it back, he might be alive now. Therefore, it occurs to me to ask you whether you have anything to put beside you of what I've told you. Uh, by way of the answer, Dunning had the episode in the manuscript room at the British Museum to relate. Then he did not actually hand you some papers? Did you examine them? No, because we must. And if you'll allow it, look at them at once and very carefully. They went to the still-empty house. Empty. For the two servants were not yet able to return to work. Dunning's portfolio papers were gathering dust on the writing table. Uh, in it were the queries of small-sized scribbling paper, which he used for his transcripts from one of these. As he took it up, he slipped and flooded out of the room with uh, an uncanny quickness, a strip of thin light paper. The window was open, but Harrington slammed it, too, just in time to intercept the paper, which he caught. Oh, I thought so, he said. It might be an identical thing that was given to my brother. You have to look. How come the paper keeps flying around all the time? Might be given to You have to look out, Dunning, by... Uh, this may mean something quite serious for you. A long consultation took place, and the paper was narrowly examined. As Harrington said, the characters on it were more like runes than anything else, but not decipherable by either man. Uh, both hesitated to copy them for fear as they confessed to perpetuating whatever evil purpose they might conceal. So it has remained impossible, if I may anticipate a little, oh God, he's doing it again, to ascertain that they, both can, they don't know what it means. Both Dunning and Harrington are firmly convinced that it has the effect of bringing its possessors into very undesirable company. That it must be returned to its source once it came, they were agreed. And further, that the only safe and certain way was that of personal service. And here, contrivance would be necessary, for Dunning was known by sight to Carswell. He must, for one thing, alter his appearance by shaving his beard, and then he might not have the blowfall first... All right, fine. Harrington thought they could time it. He knew the date of the concert at which the black spot had been put on his brother. It was June 18th. The death had followed on September 18th. Dunning reminded him that three months had been mentioned on the inscription on the car window. Perhaps, he added, with a cheerless laugh, ah, mine may be a bill at three months, too. I believe I can fix it by my diary. Yes. April 23rd was the day at the museum. That brings us to July 23rd. Now you know. It becomes extremely important to me to know of anything that you will tell me about the progress of your brother's trouble. It is, if it is possible for you to speak of it, of course, well, the sense of being watched whenever he's alone was the most distressing thing to him. After a time, I took to sleeping in his room and... He was the better for that. Still, he talked a great deal in his sleep. What about? Oh, it's wise to dwell on that. Does he make noise in his sleep like I did? We just go, <laughs> God. I think not, but I'll tell you these. Uh, two things came from him by post during those weeks, both with a London postmark. An address to a commercial hand. One was a woodcut. Beckwick's roughly torn out the page, of which shows a moonlight road and a man walking it, followed by an awful demon creature. Under it were written lines out of the ancient mariner, which I suppose the cut illustrates, about one who, having once looked around, uh, in little quotes, walks on and turns no more his head because he knows a frightful fiend doth close behind him tread. The other was a calendar, such as the tradesmen often send. My brother paid no attention to this, but I looked at it after his death and found that everything after September 18th had been torn out. You may be surprised at this having gone out alone the evening he was killed, but the fact is that the, during the last ten days or so of his life he'd been quite free from the sense of being followed or watched. The end of the consultation was this. Harrington, who knew a neighbor of Carswell's, thought he saw a way of keeping a watch on his movements. It would be uh, Dunning's part uh, to be in the readiness to try to cross Carswell's path at any moment to keep the paper safe and uh, in a place of ready access. They parted. The next weeks 
were no doubt a severe strain upon Dunning's nerves. The intangible barrier which had seemed to rise about him on the day that he received the paper graduate developed into a brooding blackness that had cut off from the means of escape to which one might have thought he might resort. No one was at hand who was likely to suggest this to him, and he seemed robbed of all initiative. He waited with inexpressible anxiety as May, June, and early July passed on for a mandate from Harrington. But all this time, Carswell remained immovable at Lufford. At last, in less than a week before the date he had come to look upon as the end of his earthly activities, came a telegram. Leaves Victoria by boat train Thursday night. Do not miss. I come to you tonight. Harrington. He arrived accordingly and concocted plans. The train left Victoria at nine, and the last stop before Dover was Cordon West. Harrington could mark down Carswell at Victoria and look out at Dunning and Croydon and calling him if he needed to by name of agreed upon. Dunning, disguised as far as might be, was to have no label or initials of any hand luggage. They must at all costs have the paper with them. Dunning's suspense as he waited on the Croydon platform and need not attempt to describe. His sense of danger during the last days had only been sharpened by the, by the fact that the cloud around him had perceptibly uh, been lighter. Hmm. But relief was an ominous symptom, and if Carswell eluded him now, hope was gone. And there were so many chances of that, the rumor of the journey might itself be a device. The twenty minutes in which he paced the platform and persecuted every porter with inquiries as to the boat train were as bitter as uh, any he had spent, Still the train came, and Harrington was at the window. It was important, of course, that there should be no recognition, so Dunning got in at the farther end of the corridor carriage, only gradually made his way to the compartment where Harrington and Carswell were. He was pleased, on the whole, to see that the train was far from full. Carswell was on the alert. Ah, but gave no sign of recognition. Dunning took the seat not immediately facing him and attempted, vainly at first, then with increasing command of his faculties, to reckon the possibilities of making the desired transfer. Opposite to Carswell and next to Dunning was a heap of Carswell's coats on the seat. It'd be of no use to slip the paper into these. It would not be safe or would not feel so unless in some way it could be proffered by him and accepted by the other. Oh, my God, there was a handbag open with the papers in it. Could he manage to conceal this so that perhaps Carswell might leave the carriage without it and then find and give it to him? This was the plan that suggested itself if he could only have counseled with Harrington. But that could not be. And minutes went on and more than once Carswell rose and went out into the corridor. The second time, Dunning was on the point of attempting to make the bag fall off the seat, but he caught Harrington's eye and read it in a warning. Carswell, from the corridor, was watching, probably to see if the two men recognized each other. He returned, but was evidently restless, and he rose a third time, and hope dawned, for something did slip off his seat and fall with a hearty sound on the floor. Carswell uh, went out once more and passed out of the range of the corridor window. Dunning picked up what had fallen and saw the key was in his hands in the form of one of the cook's ticket cases with tickets in it. These cases have a pocket in the cover. Ah, and within a very few seconds, the paper of which we have heard was in the pocket of one of those. Uh, to make the operation more secure, Harrington stood in the doorway of the compartment and fiddled with the blind. It was done, and done at the right time for the train was now slowing down toward Dover. In a moment, more Carswell... More Carswell re-entered the compartment. Oh, in a moment more. There's just no comma anywhere. And he did so, Dunning, managing he knew not how to suppress the tremble in his voice, handed him the ticket case, saying, "Uh, May I give this, sir? I believe it's yours. After a brief glance at the ticket inside, Carswell uttered a hopeful response. Yes, it is. Much obliged to you, sir, he said, and placed in his breast pocket. Even in the few moments that remained, moments of tense anxiety, for they knew not what a premature finding of the paper might lead, both men noticed that the carriage seemed to darken about them and to grow warmer, that Carswell was uh, fidgety and oppressed, and he drew the heap of loose coats near him close as he cast back and repelled them, uh, that he might sit upright and glance anxiously at both. They, with sickening anxiety, busied themselves in collecting their belongings. 
but they both thought that Carswell was on the point of speaking when the train stopped at Dovertown. It was natural that the short space between town and pier that they should both go into the corridor. At the pier, uh, they got out, but so empty was the train that they were forced to linger on the platform until Carswell should have passed ahead of them, with his porter on the way to the boat, and the only then was it safe for them to exchange a pressure of the hand and a word of congratulated congratulations. <laughs> it's concentrated congratulations, but I thought congratulated congratulations is funnier because the story's kind of boring me. The effect upon Dunning was to make him almost faint. Harrington made him lean up against the wall while he himself went forward a few yards within sight of the gangway to the boat, at which Carswell had now arrived. The man at the head of it examined his ticket, and, laden with coats, he passed down in the boat. Suddenly the official called after him. Uh, you, sir, beg your pardon. Did the other gentleman show his ticket? What the devil do you mean by the other gentleman? Carswell's snarling voice called back from the deck. The man bent over and looked at him. The devil? Well, I don't know, I'm sure, Harrington heard him say to himself, then aloud, My mistake, sir, sir, <laughs> it must have been your rugs. Ask your pardon. And then to subordinate near him, And he got a dog with him, or what? Funny thing, I could have swore he wasn't alone. Well, whatever it was, they'll have to see it on board. She's off now, another week, and we'll be getting the holiday customers. In five minutes more, there was nothing but the lessening lights of the boat, the long line of the Dover lamps, the night breeze, and the moon. Long and long the two sat in their room at the Lord Warden. In spite of the removal of the greatest anxiety, they were oppressed with a doubt, and not of the lightest. Had they been justified in sending a man to his death, as they believed they had, Ought they not warn him, at least? No, said Harrington. If he is the murderer, I think him. We have done no more than is just. Still, if you think it better. But how, uh, uh, how do, where do you warn him? He was booked to Abbeville only, said Dunning. I saw that. If I wire the hotels there in Jones Guide, examine your ticket case, Dunning, I would feel happier. Uh, this is the 21st. He will have a day, but I am afraid he has gone into the dark, so telegrams were left at the hotel office. It's not clear uh, whether these reached their destination or whether, if they did, uh, they were understood. All that is known is that on the afternoon of the 23rd, an English traveler, examining the front of St. Wolfram's Church in Averville, uh, then under extensive repair, was struck on the head and uh, instantly killed by a stone falling from the scaffold erected around the northwestern tower, there being... As was clearly proved, no workman on the scaffold at the moment, and the traveler's papers identified him as Mr. Carswell. Only one detail shall be added. At Carswell's t uh, sale, a set of Bewick sold all faults. Was acquired by Harrington. Why did that sentence make no sense to me? The page with the woodcut of the traveler and the demon was, as he had expected, mutilated. Also, after a judicious interval, Harrington repeated to Dunning something of what he had heard his brother say in his sleep. But it was not long before Dunning stopped him. Well, what was good about that story? Uh... By all the events in the story, it's a good story. You have a guy who is creepy and has supernatural abilities and scares the neighborhood kids. Uh, he's also crabby and unpredictable and gets offended very easily. And the people he gets offended by mysteriously die. They discover how he's doing it by slipping them the runes. And their job is to slip it back to him without his knowing where he's got to accept it and then he'll be cursed with it, and then he'll die. The story itself is good. Uh, what's bad about this story? It's the same kind of writing that's been driving me nuts all month from all these authors, which is insanely roundabout writing. If the guy's going to wake up in the morning and go walk to the bedroom door, it's five pages before he gets to the bedroom door with a whole lot of description about why he bought the underwear that he bought and why his sheets were a little bit more wet with sweat than they normally are, instead of just getting up and getting to the door and moving along. 
I'm, I know I realize it's the writing of the time, but it bothers me anyways. Uh, what do we learn from this? Uh, try not to just randomly offend people, because some of them might be a wizard and they'll kill you. That can't be what we learned. We learned that you should attack your attackers. Eh, maybe that makes more sense. Uh, attack your attackers. Uh, an eye for an eye. Or, if you get to keep your eye and get their eye, that's even better. So, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, if for any weird reason you want to reach out, uh, go to nuzzlehouse.com. Ben and I made a site. Uh, basically just to post up our junk. He also wants to use it as homework, because he's trying to learn more about uh, analytics. So, I mean, just know that if you do visit our site, we're Ben will be scooping up all this information about you as if he's going to market to you or something. I don't know what he's planning on doing. But anyways, yeah, if you want to email or see old episodes, it's a lot easier to go to the website. Uh, And that's pretty much it. Thanks for listening, and I will see you on the next episode.